Welcome to episode 102 of the Daniel Yoris podcast with today's guest, Phil Wagner. Let's go. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Joined here today by Phil Wagner. Phil, thanks for being here. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks, Daniel. Phil, give us a, a quick rundown of who you are and what it is that you spend your time doing. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Might not I'm, be a quick rundown, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, yeah, right now I'm the CEO and founder at Sparta Science. Um, so a lot of times, you know, with innovation startups, yeah, the CEO role is is kind of everything. Um, so I'm fortunate enough to be able to be involved in a lot of different parts from product side to, you know, you know, really the hiring side to a little bit of everything, but, but all kind of centers around this goal of, you know, how can we help individuals move better? And, you know, part of that is, you know, certainly with athletes and, and performing at a higher level and limiting pain, but also, you know, for folks as they age, you know, how do we promote and help them by giving them a better idea, objective markers, here's what you do well, here's areas you can improve on, um, and really create a vital sign, if you will, for movement, just like heart rate or blood pressure. What I love so much about my perception of what it is that you guys do since we've connected is that you're kind of coming at the whole movement optimization and movement health from the macro level. Whereas someone like myself and other personal trainers, we're dealing with a single client at a time. And there's, you know, of course, a time and a place for both of these. But I've often said here on the podcast, even like my job shouldn't exist. We shouldn't have all of these movement problems, uh, you know, you know, fully functioning society, but it's the, it's the macro issues that exist in our built environment that create these things. And so while I think we do need people uh, like myself and other trainers and coaches, we also need people like you changing the, the, the macro uh, outlook of how we move. So what is your real strategy about going against that? Because it, to me, that seems like an impossible task. <laughs> it's, it's certainly difficult. Um, you know, and I think there's a lot of good examples out there in other areas. I mean, a good example is Apple Watch in that they've you know, really expanded cardiovascular measurements and things that usually occur only in the lab. And it allows, you know, individuals to have those objective markers, you know, at home and just through everyday life. And they do that by crowdsourcing, right? All this information that's coming in from all these different people because, at the macro level, to your point, there's an access level to thousands and thousands of individuals with that approach. And so we kind of look at movement the same way, whether we look at a balance or a jump, you know, how do we look at static or dynamic movement at a macro level and leverage, much like Apple, machine learning to put people into clusters or buckets and say, hey, these, this is how you move, right? And these are the things that support, you know, not only your goals, but the way you move in terms of exercises. And the way we can come to some of these conclusions is by that crowdsourcing effort of gathering a lot of data from a lot of different people. So what, what I gather from that is it would almost be putting people into into buckets and say like, okay, you rep, or you present with XYZ movement patterns or movement efficiency. So you are a 
call it a type one mover. And then someone else yep. uh, presents with ABC movement deficiencies. And so you are a type two mover and there's, you know, a couple of these buckets. And then we can use that to generalize uh, prescriptive exercise and movement. Is that sort of an accurate representation? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think as practitioners, you know, to your point, we don't have access to that macro level. And I think as a result, a lot of times we defer to the micro piece of, okay, let's test out your hamstrings. And, you know, a good example, right? Test out your hamstrings. You know, hamstring weakness or strength may not be the cause of the hamstring injury, right? It could be an ankle dysfunction, right? It could be, you know, the skill of your running technique, right? And so, you know, the macro level can start giving more variables and insights into how the system functions as a whole. Um, you know, a good saying I always heard in medical school is, where it hurts, it ain't, right? So when we have that macro approach, we can see more of the system and how it relates to other people of their similar gender at birth or age or goals, occupation, whatever that may be. I think a good way to even sum this up and something that, you know, similar to the way that I use in my own in my own job is that we have all these movement assessments and there are tons of them out there and they all have different names and different, you know, whatever, testing and different things. And they sometimes get into the nitty gritty. Like if you fail this movement test, then it's because your right side, uh, you know, lower fibers of your rhomboid are weak. And it's like, okay, you know, you can't possibly see that with your eye. And even if you could, you're going to do the same exercises with that person as you would anyone else. So it's almost like, yeah, we have these exercises and they're almost more of a of a sales tactic, some of these movement screens. But then it's like, well, we're just going to squat. We're going to fix your squat. We're going to do pulls. We're going to fix your rows. We're going to do presses. We're going to fix your presses. And all the other things are going to kind of fall in place. But taking a, a more granular approach almost with technology that can probably assess these things better than a trained human can, uh, that, that's got to be better on a macro level, no? Yeah, absolutely. And I think you bring up a great point that the the micro <clears throat> approach you know, is not only in the assessment, but also in the exercise, you know, it's always funny when people say, oh yeah, squats are a quad exercise. Kind of, they are, right? (laughs) Quads are involved, but it's not just the quads, right? There's, you know, and so better to look at something like a squat as a movement pattern of squatting, right? As opposed to, you know, the micro level of which muscles are involved. Because to your point, you know, unless you're sticking fine EMG needles, deep into the muscles, you're really not going to know which muscles are truly being engaged and to what extent. Yeah. And even just the the patterning, someone say, you know, you do a squat and your knees cave in. Okay. That means that your adductors are weak. And it's like, well, do you really know that? Cause that's also, again, a generalization that is, oh. that is like, maybe, maybe they are weak, but maybe there's also something else that's weak. Maybe there's an ankle instant, like it could be any number of other things, but we just, trainers we've been taught like do the movement assessment if x then y and then tell that to the client and then say oh client x you are broken therefore pay me for my services because i can fix you (laughs) yeah i don't think that's a train i mean that's a practitioner problem in general we're all taught to think decision tree and concretely right and even as a physician one of the biggest parts of my training was a big piece is to comfort the patient with a sense of conviction Mm. right so you know, same deal when working with athletes or in personal training is like you want, you know, you want to convey this sense of conviction. But the challenge to your point is 
a lot of it may not be entirely accurate and could be a fair amount of assumptions. Right. right. Yeah. I think it's a good point though, to say that you do need to del- deliver it with a conviction. And it's probably even more true with athletes. If you're in a room full of football players and you're giving like the hum and haw answer, like they're not really going to buy in. Like you're already in like right. a, you know, the alpha, you have to be the alpha dog of all the alpha dogs if you're the coach and, and you've got yes. to get them to, to buy in. And, and so that's might be a little bit different than with a patient who's dealing with a, a you know a hip issue or something like that, where you're not trying to motivate them and rile them up. Your athletes, you just kind of need them to do what you need them to do, but you still need, they still need yeah. to have confidence in you as the, as the doctor or practitioner or what have you. Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's, it's where we're going, I think, is how do we balance the, the macro and the micro because technology will never replace the practitioner, right? So you know, as a result, how do we provide information to the practitioner, right, at the macro level that can validate, you know, what their plan is with each individual, right? Because that's ultimately what you want to know is, is what I'm doing working for this person or not? Because we all know there's outliers and it's, it's, we see it in prescription medicine. I mean, I don't know the stat offhand, but it used to be 40% of prescriptions actually work. Right. And a lot of it is because there's so much human variability. Right. And so how do we test against the assumptions we have of what we should do with each person from a movement standpoint? Yeah. I remember even when I was in school on anatomy tests, one of the one or anatomy exams, one of the things that they told us was they can't ask you. Uh, where does X muscle insert on whatever bone? Because you could, in theory, write any answer and it could be correct because, you know, 99% of the time it inserts at this point, but there's always outliers. And, you know, maybe the cadaver that you were working on had that outlier. And so, you know, your studies showed that, but it's not, uh, the individual approach is always, is always needed. But at the same time, I think people are all, not all that different. We're very different, but not as different as we think we are. So it's almost this, we get too much information from the testing, but the output that we're going to do or the, the treatment might not even be that different. Does that sort of, does that right. make sense? Yeah. No, it, I, I totally make sense. I think this is where we get into the, at the end of the day, if, if you work with people, right, you're in the compliance game, period. It's all, you know, you're in compliance. How do you help people be more consistent with their habits? Um, and that's a big value of technology. Right. You know, think about wearables. You know, I, I wear an aura ring, right? I'm pretty good at math, so I can subtract 10 p.m. from 6 a.m. to know I did eight hours of sleep. <laughs> you know, so why do I have an aura ring? Well, it helps kind of really um, support some of the habit changes I have into deeper metrics, right? And I think it's the same way with movement. How can you measure movement, you know, in a way that you know, is constantly validating or challenging these habits you do so you can be more consistent, either consistent with good habits or consistent in extinguishing the bad ones, right? And I think to your point, technology may not change what you do, but at the very least, it should change the compliance of what you or others do. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I had the same, I, I also wear an aura ring and I've worn one for, for several years now. 
And I wouldn't say that I learn all that much from it now because I think it's been you know four or five years. But at the beginning, I've always been a good sleeper. It was more of a curiosity thing for me. But I was Man. more on point with my sleep right at the beginning because I didn't want to wake up, check my score, and it's a shitty score. <laughs> so I would so I would change my behavior to not see a bad score. And I would if I were a, you know an Apple Watch or those things, I would want to get those those badges of you hit your step goal, you were active for X yeah. amount of time today. Like it. it the gamification of it, I think, helps a lot with just the compliance aspect, which is far and away the most important. Yeah. And you pick up, I think, um, big rocks from some of those. I mean, for me personally, stopping eating three hours before bedtime, you know, was a big rock, you know, that, you know, in a way, or it keeps me accountable towards because I know my sleep quality changes when I don't do that. And I think that alone is the value of any technology is like, how can we use that to support and identify those larger habits, right? Not the habits of, well, is that multifidi or rector spinae? Like, you know, I, I'm not sure, right? It's more like, hey, you know, what are the bigger movements or habits that need to be reinforced or need to be extinguished? Because I think with, with higher functioning individuals, sometimes they're afraid to let things go that they believe got them there, Right. And they also have to identify, hey, what got me here, you know, may not keep me here, right? And so as we age, our needs change. So how do you use technology to, to identify different movements that are needed as your body changes? That's a great point. For me, that was exactly the thing that Aura did for me was kind of calling me out on my own bullshit where I had read the research and I knew the stuff that, you know, caffeine too close to bedtime impacts your sleep, whether or not you can have an espresso and go straight to sleep, which I'm that person. I can have a coffee, fall asleep, you know, no issue. But due to the ring, it quantifies that data and says, hey, you sleep noticeably worse when you have coffee too close to bedtime. So then I stopped yep. doing that against against my, you know, I you know it on paper, but you don't know it for real. And so I'm yep. sure this happens with athletes all the time. It's like, oh, well, you know, I, I always have McDonald's before game day because that's just my, uh, my, my ritual since I was seven years old. That's what we always did. And, you know, that might not be the thing that you should be doing as you as you get into the pros and the higher levels. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think another aspect of this too is that you're someone who can look at this data, understand it, and then utilize it. But it can also be very overwhelming. The Aura Ring alone provides a lot of data. And if you've got an Aura Ring and a Whoop strap and an Apple Watch and uh, you know a polar heart rate monitor, and some people go crazy with these things. And then yeah. you're overwhelmed by this data. But then again, it's like, well, what do you what do you do with that? One, can you even interpret it? And then two, how do you actually act upon it? So in some ways, I feel for some people, it is actually causing more more harm than than good for them. Yeah, and there's a lot of research around that, that uh, anxiety that's created from information. Um, you know, I've got several high functioning friends and colleagues that don't wear wearables because it affected how they sleep because, you know, they're not sleeping well. So they check their wearable, tells them they're not sleeping well, that stresses them out. So they try to sleep well and they don't, right? And it's this nasty, vicious cycle. You know, I think the key to a lot of the data is just kind of breaking it down into steps and layers, right? And not trying to achieve or improve everything at once. It's just picking one habit or one one variable to you know learn from and implement right at the end of the day you know i think the goal of any of these things are to create or extinguish habits right and you know 
just like trying to change 10 habits at once, it'll never happen, right? So really stay in focus of why do I have a wearable? You know, why am I doing movement screening? It's like, okay, well, at the end of the day, it's to change one thing. And once you change that one thing, then you want to change one more thing, right? And so I think it's, it's you know, trying to correlate the goals and the habits with the data and information you're looking at. I think to even expand on that, is that sometimes it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of you wake up, you have a bad score and you're like, ah, not going to have a good workout today. My score was low. It's going to be shit. I'm going to take the day off. And if you're a pro athlete and it's game day, you don't get to like move your workout to the next day. Like it's game day. You got to perform. So like, have you seen that at all with any of the athletes you've worked at where they've had to kind of ditch the tech just because it would get in their head about performance on, on game days? Yeah, particularly I think a challenge is in is in baseball where you're playing every day, you know, and it's a very cognitive mental, you know, game, perhaps one of the most cognitive mental games out there. And, you know, I think that is a, a challenge. I think there, you know, I think that's where, you know, there has to be a healthy perspective that this is information and it's not, all of it is not 100% factual and accurate. Right. Um, to say that you can only perform well when you sleep well. Right. That's a hard rule. That's just not true. Right. And so, you know, I think the other thing to look at is, you know, back to your initial comments around macro micro. It's so much more important to look how you sleep over a month than how you sleep for a given day or even week. Right. And so, you know, I think that's the other key is everybody when looking at information should be more concerned with macro trends, you know, as opposed to daily, you know, stresses, because the body's not really going to change that much on a daily basis, but it will start to be impacted over a month. Yeah. Great, great point. And this is why I also have clients weigh in daily for the purpose of, you know, weight changes every single day. And so if you weigh yourself on Saturday morning, you don't weigh yourself all week and then you weigh yourself next Saturday morning, you may be up a pound or up two pounds, but you know your weight trend was actually down that week. But because you didn't have more data points, you don't know that, and so you get discouraged and overreact and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it almost kind of is becomes counter to what I was just saying about having too much data, where it's almost like we the more data we have, the better we can kind of assess what's going on. It's I think maybe more of our the way that we consume that data or the emotional attachment to that data, perhaps, where we just need to kind of like. The numbers are the numbers. They are not who I am as a human being. They're just the numbers to use them and then, you know, move on with yourself. Very well said. Yeah. The numbers are what they are. Not, they're not uh, dictating who we are as a human being. That's yeah. Very well said. I think, you know, the, the other piece you said is emotional attachment. It's a big issue with, with data, right? Is, you know, and you see it in testing, right? You know, people are, you know, obsessed with a bench outcome or a 40 yard dash outcome, Right. And there's an emotional attachment there, you know, as opposed to, you know, something more, more global of, you know, how do you move as a whole? I mean, that's, we've come up with all these great markers, you know, for measuring recovery and, and stress and performance. Resting heart rate's still the best one, you know? (laughs) So like, you know, that's a perfect example of it's nice to have all this data, but I, I think there's also just singular metrics that are more global that we can use. When you were working as a as a strength coach in in the universities, were you uh, or did you find did you work with football players? Oh yeah. And so, did you find yeah. that like leading up to the combine, they would get hyper obsessed about 
like combine numbers versus their ability to actually play football. Like the bench press is one of the tests in the combine reps of 225 pounds for anyone who doesn't know. But at in no part of a football game will you lie down on your back and bench press a barbell. So it's like, yeah, it's it's a good thing to just you know generalize your strength, but it doesn't mean that you're a good football player. Did, would you find players who get hyper focused on these tests and forget to actually work on their football skills? Yeah, and 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 I think a big part of that right is there's a financial reward to it. There's a very strong incentive right that that drives you um, to obsess about those things. So it's very challenging. And there's the you know, the 225 bench test you mentioned. The other thing is how often are you going to see an offensive lineman sprint 40 yards <laughs> all out in one straight line, right? Never. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so there's a lot of tests that aren't really representative or advantageous for them as a football player. But I think like all of us, you know, financial incentives are one of the more strong, you know, ways to incentivize someone to change or focus on habits, Right. And what's that saying? Be careful what you measure, right? Um, and so there's, you know, a lot of risk in, you know, which data and metrics you choose. Is that somewhere that you perhaps see Sparta performance getting into is starting to change the way that athletes are evaluated entering the, the pro game and using more relevant movement analytics as opposed to just the standard strength tests and athletic tests that we've used since forever? Yeah, I think in general, this concept of developing a, a movement vital sign is something we really seek to um, implement within sports and military because a lot of these tests, there's two problems. One, one they're done once or twice a year, right? And so with that assumption, your, your body only changes once or twice a year, right? <laughs> I think the other challenge is some of those metrics like we discussed – 40, you know, 225 bench test are not great metrics to measure your movement health either, right? So, you know, how can we replace that with something quick, frequent that you can do just as often as weighing in, um, but also has, you know, enough robustness to apply to everybody, right? We use the analogy internally of, of a blood test, right? Best part about a blood test is you get one draw, and whether that's looking at diabetes or cancer or, you know, a host of other issues, that one blood draw is pulling so much data, you know, that allows you to have this panel of metrics that apply to almost any condition, right? So what if we could do that for movement where you're doing a quick assessment with a host of metrics and numbers, you know, that allows you to address whatever goals or condition that individual is looking to improve. Yeah. And I, I would even imagine it would be way more helpful because if you can have good movement patterns, you are less likely probably to get injured, which is a huge part of being a pro athlete is just being healthy for longer. And especially when you're getting into the pros, we see, we see guys all the time who get injured late in their college season, who drop drastically in the draft rankings, because why would a pro team want to sign that guy? He's already injured before you even get him. And so, you know, it sounds so crude to, to say, but it's, it's the truth of the matter. So if we can have better, get better at evaluating these again on the macro level, it would, it would help a lot. What would a test like this look like? Yeah. So I think, you know, a lot of times we, we try to look at tests that have limited skill, 
right? Because, you know, trying to avoid the combine analogy of we don't want people training for the test, right? right? And the more specific the test is, right, the more skill starts to get involved, right? And that not only tries to limit the skill and the learning effect, but it also allows you to better compare, you know, against others, your similar gender, occupation, you know, age. And so that's, you know, the other value. And so one of the two tests we kind of started with was one is the balance, right? Because balance is a, a, a great predictor of a host of conditions, um, but it's also pretty basic. Can you stand on two feet? Can you stand on one leg, right? And, you know, how how can you balance, right? Are you shifting left to right, heel to toe, right? Um, if you do get off balance, how finely can you correct all these different points behind a balance and that postural stability is is just the most foundational human movement. Um, basically, it's the most foundational human movement screen there is. Um, the other one we look at is more from a dynamic perspective is a jump, right? And from a vertical jump standpoint, how can you, you know, express force rapidly? And how do you express force rapidly? Is it more eccentrically when you load? Is it more concentrically? And again, we, we want to make it as real and free as possible so we don't put your hands on your hips or enforce all these different rules. You can only go down to this height when you jump and all these sorts of things. It's like, hey, get on, get on a plate, a force plate, jump as high as you can vertically. And whether it's a balance or a jump, a force plate is one of the more granular devices in terms of capturing a lot of data. So when you do a balance, for example, generates in 20 seconds a million data points, right? And so that allows you to capture this information and create these panels of metrics that apply to different people and different goals, right? But that balance and jump are both very um, uh, limited in the, in the skill ability. And that's where they provide value. Um, and the less instruction that's required, the better. Because you want the, you know, I think movement is very artistic right? You want the person to express a balance or a jump in their own way, right? What we call a movement signature. That's how you move. And the more things we try to force or impress on it, you know, the more we change and get a false signal of how that individual moves. Yeah, that makes total sense because the test wouldn't be testing how high your vertical jump is or how long you can balance, or maybe it would be like bouts of balance getting off balance, but it would be about how you do it. And that's not something that you can test because you can't see, feel, evaluate that on your own with your own two eyes. Like the force plate is picking up all these tiny little movements, adjustments and, and whatnot. And you, they're unconscious movements. You don't do them. Like you don't know that you press your big toe in and then you shift your weight this way or whatever, right? It just happens. Exactly. And that's, so that's a, that's a brilliant idea. I, I really, I really like that a lot. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's it's looking at the qualitative aspects. You know, we talked about like the aura, right? In that it's not measuring just the duration of sleep. It's measuring the stages, the onset, right? You know, the restlessness, all these, you know, qualitative aspects within that eight hour, six hour sleep window. In the same way, when we do a, a balance or a jump, it's not looking at how long you balance for or how high you jump. Those are just the the goals, the outcomes, right? We're looking at how those outcomes are achieved. And I always get asked from an athlete standpoint, you know, well, who's the best athlete? 
that's because we've worked with, you know, dozens of pro teams and hundreds of colleges. That's everybody's first question when it comes to sports. And my answer is, what's the best painting? You know, because it's an art, right? It's the qualitative aspect. And, you know, athletes approach movement and use their own solution to that problem. Yeah. I think that's something that people who are not involved in sports don't quite understand that often is that athletes are very good at what they do, but that doesn't necessarily make them good at other things. A hockey player is really great at skating. They're probably not good at sprinting because of the exact reason that they're good at skating. They will try and sprint like they skate and that is not efficient and vice versa, a sprinter to a, to a skater and, you know, a baseball player throws in a certain way and like, that's great, but it is horrendous for their elbow and their shoulder. But their goal is not to have the healthiest elbow and shoulder. Their goal is to throw a baseball as fast as they can. And so these sports become hyper specialized, which is fine. It's part of what it is, but doesn't necessarily make it healthy. They're very good at what they do and probably not very good at a lot of other things. They might be able to pick it up faster than, than average because they just have a general sense of body awareness and body control, but that doesn't make one good at all things. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so now using these tests, you collect a lot of data points and this is done through through the force plate and through AI to classify these things. What are some of the, like these buckets of movements or these larger classifications of movements? If you can sort of speak to that as to general movement patterns or deficiencies or classifications, if you will. Um, and, and what are the major differences in how you go about solving those issues? Yeah. <clears throat> you know, at least at a kind of a, a general level, you know, one of the ways we, we try to break it down from a balance standpoint is, you know, think about bottoms up versus top down because balance has a, you know, a structural component. And I'm simplifying here, like a structural component of just how strong, how stable your, let's say your ankle is, right? <clears throat> but then there's a neural component as well. And that if you get off balance, how well do you correct back to that original, you know, position, right? Um, if you think about a sports car, right? If you barely move the wheel, it's the driving the driving wheel. You're basically gonna you know veer much more quickly than something that's not a high performance car. So you know looking at top down bottom up, you know starts to create different grouping of some individuals are poor at both. Right? You know they have poor stability. You know maybe weak weak lower body, and when they do get off balance, they can't correct very well. And then there's individuals that have you know really strong you know, ability to stabilize, but they're like a two by four. When they get off balance, they don't correct, right? Or, you know, on the other hand, another bucket is great neural ability, but not a lot of structural stability. So they're like a noodle. They just fall over, right? So those are three kind of general buckets looking at, okay, how well is the the neural piece, um, your ability to correct what we call control, and then how how good is your bottoms up stability? What we call sway, you know, and and how do those two interact to create different clusters or groupings? You know, on the jump side, we look at you know three major variables. You know, one is what we call load, your eccentric ability. We look at explode, your concentric ability, your ability to basically rebound after you're stretched, and then we look at drive which is that duration of force production. And so the interaction of those three 
three areas creates different signatures. You know, offensive linemen are really strong eccentrically, right? They have to be. They get paid to not move, right? <laughs> and then you've got baseball players that have really poor concentric strength. They're not very stiff because if you're a pitcher and you're stiff, you can't rotate that well, right? So there's these different signatures that the variables interact with to create different groupings for individuals, not only of what they do well, but what they can use to enhance, or to your point earlier, maintain their health. So in an athlete, it would be trying to specialize them more for their sport. If a pitcher comes to you and they are too stiff, then you're working on getting them looser, for lack of a better term, because they need to be able to do that for their sport. But a regular person who's not an athlete, an elderly uh, person, let's say, uh, wouldn't necessarily need that. They kind of need to be a little bit more well-balanced. So you start with say again, they're too stiff. So you start by loosening them up and it's not trying to get as loose as a person who is a, who is a pitcher, but try to get a little bit more movement so that their foot can actually articulate and move on the force plate as they balance and, you know, help them with, with regular life or start to generate power, whatever the, whatever the case may be. Is that correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's really identifying, you know, what those goals are, if you're an elderly person versus, you know, a baseball player, identifying what those goals are and then correlating it with the appropriate metrics, right? And that's where, okay, we want to work on these metrics. And to your point, if someone's stiff, maybe we need to make them less stiff or or maybe we just need to make sure to maintain where they are, you know, because a lot of us that, that are fortunate enough to be healthy, you know, it's a different goal. It's to maintain that level of health in that sweet spot um, because it, as you continue to try to perform at a higher level, it's also more likely you become more at risk. You know, in a lot of the data we've looked at, at least with athletes, the number one predictor of injury risk is jump height. If you jump higher, you're at a higher risk. You know, if you drive your car faster, it's more likely to wear down, right? So, you know, how do we kind of balance that need for performance with the need for longevity? Does that jump height metric go across all sports? Like in a sport like baseball, you're not, re- I guess maybe if you're catching, a- you're not really jumping all that much. A sport like hockey, you're not jumping, but is it just the ability? Like, What is it about jump height that would lead to that? I think it's it's more that it's a general measurement of your stretch shortening cycle which all athletes use to some extent. It may not be, to your point, in a, in a jump specifically. But when we published a research article around elbow injuries, you know, the largest predictor was jump height, you know, because in essence, you're, you're jumping off the mound to throw a baseball as hard as you can. And so the more explosive you are, the more velocity you're likely to generate when you throw – more velocity you use, right? The more stress there is on the elbow and the shoulder. Um, and so it's really trying to balance those two areas of how do you perform at a higher level, but in a way that allows you to do it repeatedly. Right. So it's probably more of a somewhat of a trade-off where your body Absolutely. includes includes explosivity, but at the at the cost of stability, kind of like a like a sports car analogy is great. A sports yeah. car is not as reliable, but it'll drive really fast. Versus a Honda Civic, not going to be that fast, but it'll it'll last you forever, kind of thing. Yeah, sometimes we even use the analogy of the stock uh, stock market or stock portfolios. Right? How how much risk are you willing to tolerate 
with your investments, right? Because if you're, you know, if you've got a long term and you're a young person and you've got a stock portfolio, maybe you're okay tolerating a lot of risk because you got a lot of years. You know, someone that's more elderly may have, want less risk, right? So it also, you really have to determine the athlete, the organization, how much risk you're willing to tolerate, you know, from a performance versus health standpoint. Right. No, it makes a lot of sense. That's a, that's a great analogy, actually. It's, and But it's also just uh, has to be related to the task, like we said before already. Athletes are very good at what they do, doesn't make them good at other things, and it's not the thing that most general people should be striving for. You shouldn't strive to be to move like a baseball pitcher because that would not be good for most people <laughs> in, in your day-to-day right. life. But having Absolutely. said that, you know, these kind of tests in, in, in your company don't really uh, cater to regular people in sort of like consumer area right now. So people can't just go and get a force plate test and like do all this stuff. So how can people start to think about their biomechanics and, and ways that they move and, and notice deficiencies maybe in their day-to-day life that they can start to try and fix if that's something that you've thought about at all? Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. Most of um, Sparta's work right now is with organizations, um, you know, to help them take care of the movement health for the people within the organization, whether it's a sports team, a military unit, or or a healthcare system, you know. And so one of the things that we're always trying to do is, you know, how can we continue to reach and help more people, which, you know, healthcare is one of the better, better ways to do that. Um, and then also sharing information we, we find, you know, through some of the education channels we have, like blogs or, or, you know, certain articles and research and really trying to put piece together what movement health means and what are some really basic steps to be aware of that can improve, you know, your general movement capabilities. Right. So in a, in a perfect world, people are able to test themselves and then that test would lead to uh, some type of training program, training program tailored to whatever the test found. And then you would retest after eight weeks or 12, however long that training program lasts and then see what worked, what didn't work, and then continue to evaluate from there. Yeah. And I think that because the test only takes, you know, two minutes, like, you know, I think the testing frequency can be even and more at a higher, you know, on a weekly or even monthly cadence, you know, so um, really as a way for the individual to, um, you know, associate what they're doing or what they're not doing um, and continue to keep them engaged. We found that it's particularly important in the rehab process, right, which can be a frustrating, you know, a lot of times gray area for individuals. Am I getting better? How much better? You know, when am I going to be ready? Like, when is this pain going to go away? And so having these frequent testing in the rehab process as well can be a helpful insight, um, not only from a compliance standpoint for that individual to continue to come in for therapy, but also from a just an emotional standpoint that they are tracking towards um, their goal, whether it's reduced pain, improved function. And that that's ultimately what allows them, you know, to you know, complete their, their rehab program in a way that's, um, safe, but also as expeditiously as possible. And you would probably see quicker changes in someone who's going through a rehab program as actual tissues and structures are changing versus a healthy person who's just looking to 
optimize performance, you might not see changes on a weekly basis, right? 100%. Yeah. And I think that's, the, again, the valuable part of the rehab process is you're able to see, you know, faster changes in in a time that's probably a little bit more frustrating for the individual, right? Um, and so you get you get more of that instant feedback in a time when you may not feel like you're getting a lot of gratification. Hmm. Yeah, anyone doing who, things like band walks, wall sits, <laughs> not exciting stuff, right? Yeah. And you're like, wow, like how much do I have to do? Is this even helpful, right? Like, should I even come back? Can I just do this at home, right? No, you took the words right out of my mouth. Like anyone who's been through a, a major injury or a surgery and had to go through the the physio exercise, rehab, and all that stuff, it's it's incredibly boring, and yes. it's incredibly slow and and. Uh, it just it just wears you down because you feel like it just still hurts every single time I come. Uh, I feel like I'm not really doing anything, but this physio person keeps telling me to do this stuff. And like, okay, I guess I'll keep doing it. And then you start to like not believe in it. And then you do it with yes. less intensity. You don't do your homework. And then it's just kind of like this downward cycle. And the physiotherapist and they're like, well, what the hell? Like, just do the stuff that we said. Like, it's supposed to work. And you're like, yeah, but we've been doing it for six weeks and I didn't see any changes. <laughs> Because we don't have a proper way to test it, right? So, yeah, I didn't really consider that. Yeah, no, you're so right. I mean, I think that's the that's the typical journey is you get you get given this homework that's you know helpful, repetitive, tedious, and effective, right? So all wrapped into one. And like, so how do you ultimately you know give some of that positive reinforcement that it's working, right? And that just stay the course. And that's where there's an opportunity to have some sort of objective marker in there. Yeah, so it would it would drastically, in my opinion, drastically improve recovery efforts across any injury, and then like the financial aspect because we always have to bring that in would be patients or clients stick with the program longer, get better, give positive referrals, you know, do more sessions, et cetera, et cetera, to actually get better, which feeds more into it, and so like everybody wins with this, and it. Doesn't even sound like it's really all that expensive. I'm sure there'll be like some upfront cost to get the equipment and whatever, but after that, it's very quickly. Yeah, I mean that's where you want to. That's where you want to live, right? Is in those win-win situations where you know the person doing rehab, you know, feels like they're getting better. That's a win. They do get better. That's obviously the biggest win. The therapist, you know, the the coach, the practitioner, you know. They get to see a higher level of compliance, right? So that they're winning. The business owner, the organization leader, you know, has better business outcomes, right? Whether that's referrals or direct, you know, revenue, right? So everybody really wins, you know, as long as we can rally folks around a, a central kind of movement health score. One thing you mentioned earlier that I wanted to come back to as we start to uh, wind down is that technology will never replace the practitioner. Yet we're seeing a, a huge surge in in AI for consumers as of late, and so your you know company included will use a lot of technology to dictate training outcomes, treatment outcomes, etc. With far more data than any human could ever evaluate or even comprehend. So in in your opinion, how much? I don't think I'm with you that the data or the technology will never replace the practitioner, but it's going to get pretty close. How much? of the practitioner do you think that the data is going to replace? Yeah, I think it's it's the practitioner role is really going to shift more. You know, I think as practitioners, originally a lot of us were trained that that it was our role to assess 
you know, and then also, you know, prescribe and treat, whether that's exercises, medications. And I think what will shift with technology is it will allow the practitioner to spend less time and energy on the assessment and screening part and more time on the interpretation and the prescription and ultimately the relationship with the athlete, patient, whoever it may be, you know, so that it'll, it'll shift more, um, which I think is a good thing, you know, because ultimately what you don't want is subjective choosing on what screen to do. It's not like you go into a doctor and they say, you know what, I don't want to do an MRI today. I kind of feel like we do a CT, you know, <laughs> let's do a CT scan, you know? And so I think that kind of flippancy is, you know, where we've got to move from a practitioner standpoint away from less about, hey, my expertise is in the screening. That's where technology can capture more data and, and crowdsource more effectively. And practitioners, that will free them up to be more on the outcomes, the treatment side of things, um, which is a mix of both technical and emotional expertise. And that's where AI is not going to play. That's where tech's not, tech's not going to play in that emotional space. Yeah, agreed. I'm I'm very, very high on the human aspect, the human input to this, because that's the thing that can never be replaced. I think that AI can, or maybe not yet, but very soon, not very not close, not far away, write better training programs, screen people better, listen to a voice, and and tell when someone's lying, or evaluate their pain better by the by the tone of their voice. Not lying, but you know what I mean, where yeah. a patient will come in and kind of over exaggerate their symptoms, and it's yeah. not even conscious, but it's like a subconscious kind of thing that you know, whatever you know what I'm talking about as a doctor, yeah. but. But uh, the AI can pick up on that faster and it can it can have the, you know, the Rolodex of every single condition that has ever existed times every single uh, medication and treatment and testing that's ever existed and then pair those two together, snap of fingers. Like I heard someone say the other day, AI is imagine you had a friend that read every single book, website, article scientific study ever and remembered all of it that's ai yeah. <laughs> and so so like you, you, can't, you yeah. can't beat that right but you can be more human than that and deal with the person's emotions and you know understand what the family implications are and maybe their their personal financial situation or whatever the downstream effects are of what's going on with them but you know trying to beat the computer is a losing game <laughs> yeah and I, and I think it's it's repositioning and reframing as practitioners how we look at it you know, we shouldn't be scared of it. It should be, mm -hmm. you know, actually an opportunity that we can move more towards, you know, actually working with people, you know, because there's less time spent on the capturing and assessment piece. Right. Something that we experience here in Canada, maybe a lot more, it's more talked about anyways, it seems is that doctors are so bogged down by the administrative aspect of their job. So much charting, so much input, so much paperwork that they can't treat enough patients or see enough patients. And it's like seven minute appointments and this craziness. And like, if that can just be taken out, then doctors can see more people, more people can get helped and everybody wins again, win-win scenario. Yeah. And I think there's a big, in from practitioners, whether it's doctors, coaches, trainers, there's a burnout issue too, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is because of the administrative burden. So I think, you know, the other hope is that technology can offload people to have more time, right? At the end of the day, that's what te technology should do. It should give people more time. Because if you have more time, right, that can be spent either with the patient, with the client, with the athlete, or it can be spent on your own self-care, spending time with family, 
or sleeping more or whatever that may be to just, you know, feel better, you know, and have a better life experience for yourself. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. Very well said. And I think, I think we'll get there, but I think currently we're just so overwhelmed, you know, bringing this whole full circle by the amount of data and information and knowledge and stuff that's out there that it's like, I'm just so bombarded by all the numbers that people can't, can't separate it. And it's actually wasting more time than it's, than it's creating, but I think we're going to get there. Yeah. 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 It's just, yeah, we're just in that transition period. And for anybody, right. Transition periods are never, you know, smooth, right. There's, there's a resettling that has to occur. Yeah. We'll get there. Humans, humans will, will, uh, prevail. I'm, I'm team human. So (laughs) let's, (laughs) but we'll see who knows. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Phil, thanks so much for being here. I know we're a little tight on time. Um, is there any last message that you kind of want to leave the people with here before we close off? Oh, thank you, Daniel. Um, yeah, no, I think it, you know, I think the message for, at least from our standpoint is, um, you know, how important and impactful movement is, you know, because it really underlies every condition as a cause or as a result. Right. And I think it's a, an exciting time to think about movement as a, as medicine, if you will, right? And something to not only keep you from, you know, negative health conditions, but also to allow you to, you know, maintain a higher quality of life, you know, each additional year. Because that's also part of the challenge, right? Is folks have injuries or pain and really affects other conditions and start other areas start to creep in, whether it's diabetes, cardiovascular. And, you know, I think so, you know, that's the exciting piece for us is that this movement health area is an exciting and really global opportunity to help, um, you know, folks have a, a better life experience. Beautiful. I 100% agree with that. Of course, I'm biased, but, you know, the ability to move is something that's where it's taken for granted far too much. And anyone who's had that taken away from them due to injury, surgery, health condition, like, you know, that when you're, you know, Set, sat in the couch and you can't move, the, you'd want nothing more than just to be able to get up and go to the bathroom by yourself and these simple things. So the longer that we can keep yeah. that and the more that we can keep that across the population, you know, the better off we're all going to be. So so thank you for doing what you do and and, and on, on that yeah. macro level and uh, because I think it's going to make a big, big, big downstream effect for, for all of us. Absolutely. So what's, well, thank you for having me, Daniel. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, contact info for, for uh, Sparta Performance, people want to get in contact or social media for yourself. I'll, I'll throw it on the show notes, but rattle it off here. So we have it. Yeah. Yeah. So our website is spartascience.com and uh, you know, the Twitter handle is Sparta Science as well. My, my Twitter handle is yeah. Dr. Phil Wagner. Um, yeah. And so that's, you know, best way to kind of learn and see some of the information we're, we're putting out there in the hopes of, yeah, really trying to help help folks around this movement health side of things. Awesome. Well, thank you again for being here. I'll throw all that stuff in the show notes. Um, check it out if you're interested for more information. If you have an organization, healthcare, sports team, anything of the like, military. Um, and that's it. Get outside, move your body, because that's the thing that's going to keep you <laughs> better than anything else. If you can't do anything else, just go outside and move as much as you can. Uh, share this podcast with whoever you feel would benefit from it like share subscribe on all the places that you listen to um instagram all those things daniel yoris and that's it go outside be a good person we'll see you next time